Welcome once again to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. We like to take a little time and to help people get at home in their hymnal, whether it be in the corporate worship services of the church or in their home and daily devotions. Today we're going to kick off a new series. We're going to be looking at music in the church. We're going to be looking at hymns, favorite hymns, hymns every Lutheran should know, hymns that are wonderful vehicles for teaching the faith, hymns that are good, maybe some hymns that are not so good, maybe some hymns that um, a Christian shouldn't sing, and we're going to try to come up with some objective criteria for evaluating hymns. And after this particular segment, after this particular program, we're going to be spending the uh, next several episodes of At Home in Your Hymnal as we look at specific hymns, analyzing them, talking about what makes them good or not so good, and why you might want to consider not only singing them when it comes to your worship at church or at home, but also committing them to memory. What you heard as we came in was the first verse of hymn 796 in Lutheran Service Book, When in Our Music God is Glorified. It's not a really familiar hymn, and uh, I'm not sure that we've uh, ever sang it at Good Shepherd. We've uh, maybe had the choir sing it a time or two. But the first verse really is a kind of telling on what we want to talk about here. When in our music God is glorified. And adoration leaves no room for pride. It is as though the whole creation cried, Alleluia. Pastor Moline, welcome uh, once again to At Home in Your Hymnal. Some uh, general thoughts about uh, music and that first verse, that first line of LSB 796, when in our music God is glorified. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the places where... Uh, it's really important that we get things right, uh, and as a result, there's a lot of conflict and disagreement about this particular topic, what makes a good hymn, what sh- kind of music should we have in church, and um, uh, part of our uh, understanding of this, we need to make sure that what we're doing is supporting God's Word uh, and the gift of God's sacraments, and everything that we're doing is uh, promoting that instead of in other things, because that's the most important thing in the divine service, is the delivery of God's Word that creates and sustains faith. And so that's what this hymn is uh, that you're talking about, is teaching us, when our music, God is glorified, and adoration leaves no room for pride. In other words, everything is about what God is doing and how we are uh, receiving his gifts and appreciative for the salvation he's won for us in Jesus Christ. When we're proclaiming that message and not our own pride, not our own opinions, not our own selfishness, uh, that's when we're really getting things as right as we can as sinful human beings. Verse 3 is an interesting verse in this hymn. It says, So has the church in liturgy and song, in faith and love, through centuries of wrong, borne witness to the truth in every tongue. Alleluia. Now, in centuries of wrong can be taken in a lot of different ways. It can be talked about in like social just injustice, economic injustice, a lot of things going on in our world right now with regard to racial injustice. But uh, really what we're talking about here is false teaching and false doctrine, isn't it? 
Well, amongst other things, I mean, I don't, I don't think um, we can narrow the, the the word wrong down to just the false teaching. I think uh, the point is, is that uh, throughout all the ages, when yes, there is rampant false teaching, yes, there's plague and war and conflict and riots and violence and murders and uh, disease. When all these things are going on uh, in the hymnody and in the liturgy of the church the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is still being proclaimed and saving people from this world of all those evils and giving them the hope of eternal life um, and the promise of eternal life too, not just the hope. And we have a marvelous example of the use of song, the use of hymnody. Verse 4 of this song says, And did not Jesus sing a psalm that night? When utmost evil strove against the light, then let us sing for whom he won the fight. Alleluia. Jesus gives us a marvelous example. Uh, they sang a hymn. They sang a psalm. And uh, singing has been a part of the church, has been a part of Christianity, has been a part of worship from day one. Has it not it really has, uh, and even back into the Old Testament times, um, the Psalms oftentimes were prayed as people um, gathered together for worship at the temple, uh, at their local synagogues, uh, as a part of the uh, family worship that took place in people's homes. Uh, all these things, you knew the Psalms, you sang the Psalms, you participated in worship through the Psalms uh, and through the singing of hymns in that way. So, Pastor... The, uh, you mentioned before that this can be a real bone of contention in the church. Uh, a lot of conflicts come with regard to music in uh, the worship service, uh, oftentimes music in the um, extra or extended services of the church, uh, a wedding, a funeral. People want to sing their, uh, their favorite uh, country western song, their favorite rock and roll song, their favorite jazz song, their favorite big band song. And sometimes the pastor is the bad guy, the, the one who says, well, you know, that's not really appropriate for the worship setting. People hear that in a very subjective way. In other words, who are you, pastor, to tell me what's appropriate and what's not appropriate for the worship setting? You've got your uh, sister program here on KNNA where you are uh, bringing Bach back. And at uh, various times in that program, and especially at the end of the program, you say something, and I'll, I'll, I'll give a kind of a quote here. I'll paraphrase what you say. You say something like, uh, this is what music could sound like in the church. Music that, that carries the theology in a beautiful and magnificent way. So how would you respond to a criticism or an observation that that statement or a pastor making a judgment call on what's appropriate or what's not appropriate for music in the church is a very subjective thing, and all you're doing is interjecting your personal tastes. Yeah, um, there's a lot there that we need to maybe tackle before we can even answer that question. And so to begin with, maybe the thing we need to ask is, what's the purpose of music in the divine service? Is it just there... Uh, to entertain us, to make us uh, have a certain emotional feeling? Uh, is it there uh, to uh, 
um, you know, keep the, the noise of the kids in the pews quieted? Is it there to set the stage for the sermon? Why do we have music in the divine service? And the answer is, it's actually there as a servant of God's word. The whole divine service, every little bit of it, is there to bring God's word to us because we know that when God's word is present, the Holy Spirit is working in that word to create and sustain faith. And so the liturgy that we use to start with, it is quotes from God's word uh, where that word is set to music or spoken uh, and it is bringing us exact quotes from the scriptures. And in the word, the Holy Spirit creates faith. We have scripture readings that bring us God's word verbatim from the Holy Scriptures, and in that word, the Holy Spirit creates faith. We have sermons that uh, are expounding upon what God's Word means, uh, weaving together all the different parts of God's Word so that we can understand them and apply them to our life and know our sin and know our Savior. And in that word, the Holy Spirit creates faith. Now, all the other parts of the service are there to bring us God's word. It really should not be any different for the hymns that are used in the church. And so we want those hymns to bring us God's word. Now, um, when we're talking and dealing with God, we do want to operate with a certain level of reverence in understanding that God is really present in his word, that God really delivers forgiveness of sins to us, and that God is really actually uh, a holy God whom we can't treat with nonchalance, perhaps is the way to say it. And so when we're Singing a hymn that brings us God's word, there's also a particular music that brings across that reverence and holiness that is important for us to consider as well. It doesn't have to be Bach. Uh, Bach fits into a certain... Uh, historical period of music history called the Baroque thing. We could, uh, it's even different than Mozart, which came after him, or um, Mendelssohn, which came after Mozart. There's history of music, um, and it doesn't have to fit into one of those little eras of music, but what it does is it brings across that reverence, that holiness, that awe, that importance of who God is as he works with us uh, in his word, and that's what we want to accomplish. And so, I think when we have this disagreement between people saying, well, that's your opinion uh, and this is my opinion, we're actually talking in two different ways. As a pastor, my concern is bringing God's word with the proper reverence, not my own personal music opinions, not my own uh, style preferences and things like that. And oftentimes the people on the other side are are primarily talking about, well, this is the kind of music I like, this is what makes me feel good, and so we're talking in two different languages, and we have to figure out a way to get in the middle so that we can actually understand what the other one is saying, and that's step number one. So I've talked for a minute. I don't know if I've answered the question, but tell me where... Well, I think, I think you've uh, framed the discussion and framed the question very, very well. Uh, most people don't think of it in these kind of doctrinal or complex ways. They just know what they like. They can't really explain what they like. And why can't we have music that I like in church? Why do I have to learn a, a liturgy or a hymn that is unfamiliar, maybe hundreds or thousands of years old? Uh, why should I have to do that with regard to my worship life? Can't I just go and have fun? 
You know, and people say things like that, just real briefly, there's liturgy in everything. There's no such thing as liturgical free worship or even liturgical free public events. Even Nebraska football games have their particular liturgy, right? And they score a touchdown, uh, the band plays, people sing along, they wave their arms a particular way. Um, there's liturgy in everything. They, and sh- they shout out certain responses right. during other Husker songs. Husker power, Husker yeah. power. Um, Go big red. Yeah. And even now in the what the fourth quarter, they have that uh, Irish drinking song uh, about Nebraska football that they do. So there's liturgy everywhere. The question is, what is that liturgy carrying across? For us in church, the thing that needs to be carried across in the liturgy is God's word. That's the emphasis. That's the important thing, because that's why we're there at church. Can it be entertaining? Sure. Can it be fun? Sure. Can it be uh, modern music? Sure. Can it be old music? Sure. That stuff is secondary to bringing God's word across. That's the primary thing because that's what church is about. Okay. We're going to further explore this topic and uh, talk about what is it that makes a hymn a good or appropriate hymn for the worship service. This is at home in your hymnal. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal. Once again, we heard uh, Hymn 796 in Lutheran Service Book, When in Our Music God is Glorified, as our uh, bumper music for this uh, particular program, Episode 38 of At Home in Your Hymnal. We're looking at hymnody, music in general, what makes a good hymn, what makes a hymn appropriate in the worship service, and... uh, we heard verse 2 of that hymn coming in, and uh, verse 2 is one that uh, oh, maybe makes me cringe a little bit. How often making music we have found a new dimension in the world of sound as worship moved us to a more profound. Alleluia, alleluia. Now, that can certainly be understood in a good way and in a positive way and in a right way, the way that you talked about in our uh, earlier segment. But unfortunately, there are many in the world who want to use music as a way to manipulate the emotions, to tug at the heartstrings in a way that is contrary to the theology that we Lutherans believe, teach, and confess. I've got a, a couple little quotes here from the uh, amazing book by Clement Price, Fire in the Staff. It is uh, a book that talks about the nature of theology and practice. They're not disjointed things. They are connected. This is a uh, Concordia Publishing House book, and I see uh, copyright 2004 already. Man, oh man, that dates me. I was, I was still in college. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, but um, 
there are people, especially those who are in the uh, church growth business, they are uh, very, very concerned about dollars and seats and trying to figure out how to manipulate people so that churches can grow. Basically, they don't trust that the gospel will do what the gospel promises to do. There is a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Neil Barna, or uh, George Barna, excuse me, George Barna, who is a uh, prolific church pollster and analyst. He's tried to do a lot. He, he really loves the church. He really loves Christ, and he's trying to do all these wonderful things to bring people into the church. But unfortunately, sometimes these things uh, cross the line or cross the boundary. Uh, so uh, on page 318 of Fire in the Staff, uh, Preuss writes, so what can a church do to make sure that the worship services effectively move people to encounter God? Barna answers, the people who attend a worship service should be ushered into his presence through an intentional effort to make God's presence palatable. Here, notice that word, palatable. palatable. For highly effective churches, this has meant a re-engineering of how the worship service is designed, carried out, and evaluated. Changes must be made to the worship service. What are these changes? One of the most significant is the practice of singing praise songs for about 20 minutes at the beginning of the service. Easy listening music, Barna says, to find a means of expression to God without having that flow disturbed by other forms of activity. It is a mistake to assume that people are ready and prepared to worship when they first arrive on Sunday morning. Usually they need to wake up first. And again, this is a Barna quote. We believe you wake up the body by waking up the bodies. So we intentionally choose a song with a strong, fast beat and a bright melody that people can move to. The worship leader then is to read the congregation. And when he or she surmises that the people are integrated into worship, he or she then transitions from the music to the next part of the worship experience. Pastor, your, your comments and reflections on that style, uh, and while it would be looked upon as a non-liturgical style, it is very intentional and in that respect, very liturgical in its nature. Right, uh, but underneath all of that is, um, boy, at the very best, semi-Pelagianism, or uh, maybe Pelagianism in its fullness, the idea that um, God's Word doesn't create and sustain faith by itself, that there needs to be some addition to it, some sort of action, either by us or by the uh, congregation or the person worshiping. And in this particular case, everything that he's saying is, God's Word isn't enough, you need to wake people up first so that it will work. And if you don't wake people up, or you don't get them moving or active, or you don't play the right kind of music, then God's Word won't work. And, you know, I don't know what year he wrote this, he said 2004 when this book came out, that means there's 2,000 years of church history before that that says the Word of God is actually enough, and you don't need to add or subtract from it. In fact, you can't, is what we would say in our uh, liturgical uh, confession of faith. And so um, it, it's false doctrine that's behind that statement. And, and I know he's very well-meaning. He wants the church to grow, but he doesn't understand that the church only grows by the work of God through the word and through the sacraments, which is what scripture clearly teaches. And 
quite frankly, this uh, style is nothing new. Uh, this style is the style of the revivalists of the uh, late uh, 18th and early to mid 19th centuries. This was the revivalism that swept across the nation, um, not so much in the first Great Awakening, but especially in the second Great Awakening. Charles Finney, the anxious bench, revivals that were going on, people uh, catching or feeling the spirit and falling down. There is a distinctive theology that is involved here that certainly is not Lutheran and is contrary to the very words of Scripture, which teach us how the Holy Spirit works and moves and converts and keeps people in the faith. Yeah, and, and I mean, the place where it says this very clearly is in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Uh, we see that borne out throughout all the pages of Scripture. What did the apostles do when they went out? They preached. What did Jesus do when he went out? He preached. Uh, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. How did faith come to people in the Old Testament times? The same way, by preaching of God's Word. God's Word is the thing that creates faith. The Holy Spirit works in that Word. And so everything that we do needs to support that Word. Now, to be completely fair, could you have... A few songs at the beginning of church that brought God's word, that would be maybe beneficial. But the style of praise music oftentimes doesn't actually focus on God's word. It focuses primarily on the emotional um, stimulation that it brings. And God's word is a secondary or tertiary or even much further down the line sort of thing. It's not the primary um, mover in praise music, and therein lies the problem. I think it's very much uh, most of the praise music that is out there that that, uh, Barna and uh, Preuss are talking about here are very much emotional, feelings, man-centered, anthropocentric kind of songs, uh, which begs the next question, Pastor. Um, You know, here, the music is chosen to elicit a specific emotional response. It's to get people stoked up or woken, uh, wake up, you know, so that they can hear or be in the presence of God. Uh, music is an emotional thing. Music is an emotional vehicle. And it we, is. Would, we would both be lying if we said that we did not both get emotional during certain hymns, during certain parts of the liturgy, uh, during uh, certain verses of specific hymns, they they bring shivers up your spines. They bring tears to your eyes. Uh, so how do we balance the the fact that music very often by nature is an emotional vehicle and tool, and we are emotional creatures, against the manipulation of emotions to elicit a specific response. Yeah. um, Last Sunday, we sang, Lord, Thee I Love With All My Heart, which is a great Martin Schalling hymn from the 16th century, uh, Lutheran chorale that's been sung last 500 years. And the last verse of that always almost brings tears to my eyes. I get that emotional feeling. But why, right? What's the reason that we sing that hymn? It's not 
to bring that emotional uh, exhilaration to the person singing it. Uh, that's a byproduct of it. The reason we sing that hymn is because it confesses the truth of the faith. The theology is right. It brings God's word. And so the way we balance it is, is what our most important purpose of all the hymns, all the songs, is to bring God's word. Can it be emotional? Outside of that, or as a secondary or third uh, sort of thing, absolutely. Uh, can it bring tears to your eyes, you know, when you sing Abide With Me and you remember the funeral uh, of your loved one that you sang it at? Absolutely. But the reason you sing the hymn is not to have that emotional experience. You sing the hymn to hear God's word. There's a danger in the focus being emotions because sometimes you have a bad day. What about then? Is God with you uh, when you're not emotionally ready to sing that song and to jump up and down when things are going wrong? Is God still there with you when you uh, are emotionally having a no good, very bad day? If the focus is God's word, God's word can still work no matter what your emotions are and bring faith to you through the work of the Holy Spirit. If the purpose is emotion and you think that that's where you need to look to find God when you have the bad day, your faith is really taking a huge hit, and, and that's the key then. God's word first, the other things follow along after that. Uh, you, you said a lot there, and uh, you, uh, I, I hate to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. You, what you uh, said reminded me of a uh, situation many, many years ago, probably when you were a student at Lincoln Lutheran, and I was uh, asked to do chapel at Lincoln Lutheran one day. The uh, teacher, um, coach, who was in charge of chapel that day, started with a bunch of praise-type songs, and he was basically having a um, pep rally for Jesus. You know, and are you excited about Jesus? Are you excited about Jesus? And doing the wave and doing all kinds of things. And uh, he finally then turned things over to me. And I took the microphone and I looked at the students that were assembled, you know, a couple of hundred students that were assembled on the bleachers. And I said, I'm here to assure you today that Jesus loves you, even if you're not excited about Jesus. And, um, uh, it was, it was, I'd said that and I did that for a couple of reasons. First of all, there were a lot of kids on the, ba on the bleachers that thought the whole thing was hokey. And they just sat there. They weren't participating. You may have been one of them. Um, but there were, there were also kids that you could tell by the looks on their face. They were doing the motions. They were going through the emotions. But by the looks on their face, they were having one of those not so good, very bad, extremely awful kind of days. And to create a fake emotion in the midst of someone really, really struggling with their faith uh, does no one any good. It does not bring glory to God. And quite frankly, it's offensive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, uh, we need to take a uh, short break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal, episode 30, what did I say it was? I think 38 is what you I said. I think I said 38 as well. Episode 38, we're looking at music in general and hymnody in the church. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We're taking a look at the general topic of hymnody. We're hoping to set the stage in this episode 38 for a uh, longer series that will follow where we're going to look at specific hymns. Grab us on Sunday after church and uh, tell us what hymn you'd like us to analyze, and we will uh, do our best. We want to begin... with uh, next episode talking about hymns that every Lutheran should know and why uh, every Lutheran should know those hymns. But we need to establish a little bit more of a criteria here for what seems to be a subjective kind of a thing. What makes a hymn a good hymn? What makes a hymn an appropriate hymn? We've talked a lot about the underlying theology with uh, some types of music, some types of liturgy, some types of hymns, and uh, I, I can't help but think to a distinctive difference in the doctrine between uh, much of the evangelical or Reformed Christian world and confessional, historic, biblical Lutheranism. Many people in the evangelical or Reformed world would look to the Uh, Westminster Confessions or the Heidelberg Catechism for their teaching. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is the purpose of man? What is the purpose of man? Pastor, do you know off the top of your head how the Heidelberg Catechism answers that question? Boy, not off the top of my head. It is to give glory to God. To give glory to God. The purpose of man is to give glory to God. And that's an interesting statement because uh, where does it then begin worship? It doesn't begin with God giving his gifts or his word and our response. Rather, it begins with us glorifying him, and then he responds if we do it the right way. I'm taking taking your words out of your mouth. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I've often thought, you know, we have different questions. We don't begin there. Where you begin matters. But if that was the first question in the uh, synodical question and answer part of the Luther Small Catechism, what is the glory of man? Of man uh, what is the purpose of man? I think Lutherans would say uh, not to glorify God because then that makes the beginning with us. I think I would say the purpose of man is to receive the gifts of God. What do you think about that as a uh, as a Lutheran answer, and really as a place to go as we uh, continue our discussion of hymnody? I think that that would be the the right answer. I still don't think it should be the first uh, question or the first dogmatic statement that's made, because we ought to really begin with God Himself. Um, because without understanding God, we can't understand who we are either as creation of God, uh, and so. I think that'd be the way to answer it in the Lutheran way, but I I don't think it's the first question. No, and that's probably why Luther in his uh, wisdom begins Luther's small catechism with the Ten Commandments, which shows us not only who God is, but shows us our sin. And the Augsburg Confession begins with God as well. Amen, amen. Um, In uh, The Fire and the Staff, I want to read a little uh, piggybacking on what we just said. I want to read a little scenario, and uh, this is The Fire and the Staff, 2004 book by Clement Preuss. CPH, and I want to read this little uh, vignette. It's an easy book to read, a fun book to read, that uh, begins on page 322. John and Martha believe that they must do something in order to be saved. They are typical people. 
Self-righteousness clings to us all. So John and Martha visit your typical traditional Lutheran service, kind of like Good Shepherd. The hymns are hard. They can't participate. The liturgy is boring to them. They are not moved. The music is unfamiliar. They are frustrated. Only the pastor is involved, at least when it comes to leading the service. They wonder whether they could be involved. Finally, they are told they can't go to communion. They are angry. Everything that has happened has forced John and Martha to be passive, and they don't like being passive. The next week, John and Martha go to a different Lutheran church in which the service has been re-engineered. We would probably say contemporary. Non-traditional. Blended. Blended, something like that. Now they are active. They can sing songs. They are moved. They can visualize their involvement by seeing the involvement of others. They get to go to communion. They are active, which is exactly what they want. Then, after a few weeks, John and Martha start listening to the pastor's sermons. The pastor says, You are not saved by what you do. You are not saved by your activity, your involvement, or your actions. You are saved by being passive. You are saved through faith in what Jesus has done for you. John and Martha are now very confused. What does the pastor want, activity or passivity? They ask him to visit them. When he comes by, they ask, why do we go to church? His answer is the most important thing they will ever hear. He says, at our church, we try to do exciting things on Sunday. It's important for us to get people involved. We want your Sunday experience to be memorable. I think that if you would join our church, you would find a place where you could be active. John and Martha are now happy. The Sunday morning worship is a way in which they can be active. They must have understood that part about being passive. The pastor did not change his doctrine. He changed his practice. His new practice, probably unbeknownst to the pastor himself, conflicts with his doctrine. The people believe and behave based on the practice, not on the doctrine. They are learning from the practice. All the people who join the church will be attracted to activity. They will not want passivity. By changing the service of the church is in terrible danger of losing the gospel of grace alone. What do you think about that little vignette from Clement Price, Fire in the Staff, page 322 and 323? I think it's a very common situation that happens in churches, and it's a uh, showing us how we so often misunderstand what actually happens in worship, uh, even the the way the verb is used, we think that we're the ones that do the action of worship, and, and that's that's too bad. And I think that's why back in the German and even in the early days of our English translations, we said divine service rather than worship, because what happens on Sunday is God serving us rather than us serving God. And we need to be clear about that the whole way around. And our practice needs to reflect that fact. Um, and that's what allows God's word to float to the top is the most important part of the worship service is if God's serving us, we need to hear what God is saying so that we can understand that and be brought into the faith by what he says and how he works. You know, and, and I don't want anybody to think that we're picking on our friends in the uh, evangelical and reformed churches, um, many of whom are, are 
God-fearing and well, well-intended Christians. This, uh, this is a uh, situation that is uh, being taught in the Roman Catholic Church as well, especially since the Vatican II Council, where liturgy was defined as a work of the people. This goes against uh, nearly 2,000 years of uh, history, liturgy, hymnody in the Roman Catholic Church. And by trying to be more attractive to young people or people of different cultures, uh, the church really, in changing its practice by having lay readers, by doing all kind of changes with the languages, changes with the mass, they change their doctrine away from delivering the gifts that God has provided for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, um, worship in general, and when we're talking specifically about hymnody, hymnody needs to be a means or a vehicle, I don't know if you like that word or not, Pastor, in which God brings the gifts to the people of God. Is, is that a fair way, or do you have a different way to explain it? Yeah, I, I think that's the right way to go about explaining it. Um, the whole service uh, is there to support God's Word, to be in service to God's Word. God's Word is not in support of what we're doing, you know what I mean? So it's not, um, we use God's Word to help us get the emotional high, or we use God's Word to help us... Um, uh, praise God the right way or anything like that. It all is about God's Word and what He's doing and delivering in that Word. Well, there were there were some, uh, especially in the early days of Christianity in America, that they were so concerned about this that they would only use the Word of God in their music and in their worship. They would only sing psalms. They would not sing a hymn that was authored by a human being for fear that, that some something foreign or something negative would enter in. Why don't we take that approach? Why don't we go... Uh, to, to a more uh, Puritan or Quakerish kind of view of hymnody and worship. Yeah, um, that'd be maybe the um, extreme view of what we're saying, but what we believe is that um, God's Word is easy to understand and able to be taught, and sometimes um, the theology is not just written out there in a theological style and in a dogmatic statement. It doesn't just say, um, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, baptism uh, saves you. I mean, it saves those, says those things, but it's not dogmatically written. It's a narrative account in the scriptures. And so we can use our reason in service to God's word to take and write hymns, and we could say even sermons, right, and liturgies that teach the same thing that Scripture says without using the exact words of Scripture. We use the exact words where we're able, but we also are able to take, you know, maybe from First John and from Deuteronomy and uh, the Psalms and put them together into a statement that says those same things, but in a slightly different way, perhaps easier to understand and takes the context as one big whole instead. And so when we only say exact quotes from Scripture, there's nothing wrong with that. Some of our hymns do that, but we're also um, not necessarily explaining everything as clearly as we can uh, when we write things 
in a more common language to us. Could, couldn't uh, uh, Spot on. Couldn't we say that exact same thing with regard to architecture, with regard to art of any form? That, that these are all gifts from God, and they can be gifts that you are used to uh, glorify God, to bring God uh, to, to the people, or they can be things that would be a uh, hindrance to God or an obstruction to God. You know, you think of some of the uh, grossly offensive works of art that people have talked about, taking a, a crucifix and sticking it in a jar of urine or something. That's not art. That's no, not art. No. But so so art, music, all of these expressions can be and well they are gifts from God and they can be used to his glory. Maybe this is the way to say it. Um, we're able to take all of scripture and its teachings from all over and bring it in a few verses with rich depth that connect all those different places in scripture and we shouldn't limit ourselves to be unable to do that by requiring there to be exact quotes from scripture only. Okay, that uh, that gets us ready. We're going to look at some specific criteria when we come back in our final segment, episode 38, At Home in Your Hymnal. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Our program, At Home in Your Hymnal, is a marvelous opportunity for us to reflect on the what and the why of worship, helping people be at home in their hymnal. The hymnal we use at Good Shepherd Lutheran Service Book, the hymnal of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and to be at home in your hymnal with the corporate worship services of the church, to be at home in your hymnal, in your uh, individual and family devotions. Hymnody is definitely a major, major part of the worship service, and uh, we pray that the hymns and the liturgies um, are a blessing for you and truly bring you Jesus and his gifts. Now, we've been kind of dancing around uh, one of the questions that I posed to you earlier, Pastor. Uh, basically, what makes you judge and jury for the hymns that are sung in the church? Uh, who are you to determine what is appropriate and what is not appropriate? Now, you're the pastor. You're called. That's your job. But how is this not a subjective emotion thing based on whether the pastor likes classical music or uh, hip-hop? How is this not a subjective thing uh, and no more subjective than the person sitting in the pew who wants what they want? What kind of an objective criteria does a faithful Lutheran pastor use with regard to evaluating songs and hymns in the church. 
Yeah, and just uh, to be clear, to start with, a pastor doesn't uh, just pick a, a hymn because of the style of music that they like. And, you know, um, the hymns we pick on Sunday morning, we don't do just because we like organ music, right? Uh, you like 60s um, rock and, and uh, things like that. I like 70s and 90s rock. Uh, you know, I like Nirvana. I like uh, Everclear, Weezer, things like that. Uh, you were playing for us earlier today. Um, uh Gary, Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Um, you know, I like uh, the Beatles. I like Led Zeppelin, uh, things like that. So that's the kind of music I listen to outside of church. It's not like I'm driving around in my car listening to organ music all the time. Do I sometimes? Yes, but it's not my preferred sort of music that I listen to when I shower in the morning. We actually come up with the hymns based upon uh, reasonable criteria, and I think uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller has kind of a good uh, outline for what that looks like, and so we're going to steal a little bit from him. His first criteria that he mentions is Jesus. Does the song talk about Jesus? When the song talks about Jesus, is it just in a uh, sort of a, he mentions his name and that's it, or does it have uh, more of the concept or the theology or the details about Jesus. Who is he? Why has he come? He's part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, he is God and man, the one who came to suffer, bleed, and die to forgive us all of our sins. Is that what we're talking about, Jesus? Uh, or are we just, uh, you know, we're mentioning his name just to be Christian? You know what I mean? Yep. So, and this this has to do with what we've been talking about the whole episode here, because Jesus is the word of the word of God made flesh. And so, when we're talking about Jesus and all that goes with him, then we're talking about theology based on God's word. And so, when we talk about Jesus, that brings baptism with it. It brings the Lord's Supper with it. It brings uh, the doctrine of sin with it, and uh, then the forgiveness of sins with it. And so, all those things are encapsulated in making sure we get Jesus right, and that brings us God's word. Okay, so Wolf Mueller's Hymn Cruncher, number one criteria is Jesus, okay? Yeah. The second thing that he talks about is clarity. Is the song clear? Does it use sentences with subject, verb, and object, or does it use sentence fragments? And what he's getting at here when we talk about Jesus, or we talk about theology in the hymn, is it easy to understand what's being said, or is it easy to obscure, and um, can we read false doctrine into it, or is it so very clear that you can only get the right doctrine out of it? Um, and this is, you know, to take a song, for example, there's that Chris Tomlin song that uh, is one of the most famous of all time praise worship songs, How Great Is Our God. He talks about how great is our God about 16 million times in the song. He has a few theological phrases, but they're really not that specific. You can read a lot of different gods into what he says. For example, you could read the Mormon God into what he says. Um, he does. He says, Father, Son, Spirit, um, but that's it. And it doesn't say what they're doing or who they are. And so we have kind of a broad, weird God that we can read into that. We don't want that. We want to be clear. So number one, Jesus. Number two, clarity. Yes. Okay. 
Number three, uh, he mentions mysticism. Uh, is it subjective or objective? Is the song about the things that God has done? Uh, that's objective truth. That's what the scripture teaches. Or is it about my own emotions and experiences? That's subject. Is it about what I'm feeling, how I'm operating, how I'm acting? Or is it about what God is doing for me through his word and sacraments? And there's the difference there in that one. And that one's probably a, a big issue that eliminates a lot of praise songs, even, I hate to say it, we have a few in the hymnal that do a bad job of distinguishing this particular point. Um, And it's not to say sanctification doesn't matter or it's not important. It is, but you have to have justification before you can deal with the sanctification part. Sanctification must flow from the cross and empty tomb. Correct. Okay, Jesus, clarity, mysticism. Yep, the fourth... um, kind of a guiding principle would be law and gospel. Does the song proclaim the law in its sternness and the gospel in its sweetness? Uh, the law is the thing that shows us our sin, how we've broken God's word, how on our own we can do no good thing. The gospel is the thing that brings us Jesus, that forgives that sins. Uh, and so we have to have those correct, uh, clearly distinguished, and we have to have them um, rightly proportioned, maybe even. We can't confuse them. Um, Proper distinction. Right. And so, I mean, I don't know how long we want to go into that, but there's a whole book by Walther on this topic that's worth your read. Okay, so we have, I'm, I'm pushing you through these because mm-hmm. I have a project at the end. Jesus, clarity, mysticism, law and gospel. There's one more. Yep. The last one, is there any explicitly false teaching in the song? Right. Um, so uh, I have decided to follow Jesus is another praise song that probably everybody knows. It's more old school than some of the modern praise songs, but uh, uh, that is a explicitly false doctrine. It is Pelagianism, deciding to follow Jesus. Uh, it's a heresy that has been condemned by church councils and uh, uh, in much of theology across the world, maybe not as much here in America as needs be, um, but it's it's condemned. And so when we say, I have decided to follow Jesus, that's explicit false teaching, and that's wrong. We could do that with a lot of other doctrines and dogmas besides just that one. If there's false teaching, you should not listen to that hymn. And a, uh, a, a false teaching that often slips in with a lot of uh, songs, hymns, praise-type music is uh, a generic God and not a God that is clearly the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, it's not that every song, uh, hymn, needs to mention the Trinity, but it can't be so ambiguous that a Unitarian or someone who denies the divinity of Jesus, like a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, could embrace this hymn. Or even now the feminization of God, mother, daughter, and womb, instead yeah. of Father, Son, and Spirit. Clear false doctrine. I want, to, uh, I want to do a little project here to give you a little taste and a little flavor for what we're going to be doing over the next several episodes of At Home in Your Hymnal, where we're going to talk about hymns, what makes them good Lutheran hymns, worthy of your consideration, worthy of singing on Sunday morning, worthy of your memorization. We've been playing on and on and on uh, LSB 976, when in our music God is glorified. Let's put it through the hymn cruncher, okay? So, number one is Jesus. Is Jesus mentioned? Um, Jesus is mentioned in verse 4, but there's really nothing about Jesus. It implies that Jesus is God, 
but it does not specifically say that Jesus is God. It uh, talks about the love of Jesus. It talks about um, the evil strove against the light. Now, we know that Jesus is the light of the world, but the hymn doesn't say that. And that could be in Buddhism as well, that sure. idea. Just, I mean... And, and then it also says that he won the fight, but it doesn't say what the fight is, who the fight is against, what the fight is for. Uh, so uh, it, it does have Jesus in it, but it's very weak and, and that, that would respect. be point number two then. Is it clear? It's probably not as clear as it should be in that regard. Correct. So it does have Jesus, but it's kind of a weak Jesus. It's not very clear. Uh, I don't really see any mysticism in this hymn. Um, I mean, it does talk about our emotions and things like that, but... Um, it, the the second verse, the last line, and we talked about this earlier, right? Where a new diet, a new dimension in the world of sound, as worship moved us to a more profound that that borders on it just a it, little bit. It borders on it, and that goes back to point two. It's just not very clear. It's right. not very clear with what it means. Okay, so the third criteria is law and gospel, and um, there is a an illusion to the gospel, talking about how Jesus won the fight. Uh, earlier, it talks about our pride. And so it does have a kind of a weak mention of law and gospel. But let's be honest, there is no clear law and gospel in this hymn. It does not proclaim the truth of our sin and the truth of Christ's victory over that sin for forgiveness, life, and salvation for poor, miserable sinners like me. Would you agree with that evaluation? Yes. Okay. And it, it, our, It's incomplete. It would not work as a sermon in that regard. Okay. And our last criteria is what, Pastor? Uh, is there any explicit false teaching? I don't think there is any explicit false teaching in this hymn. And so after we've gone uh, through Wolf Mueller's hymn cruncher with this hymn, I would say that this is a weak hymn. It does not do any particular damage, but it doesn't do any particular good as well. What do you think on that? I'm with you 100%. Okay, maybe that's one reason why we've never sung it on Sunday morning. Uh, and again, uh, we, we're not picking on this hymn or picking on the editors of a Lutheran service book. We want to just teach you what pastors go through uh, because we most pastors take very, very seriously the hymn selection uh, for a divine service. And as we go forward then, what we want to do is we want to take some of those hymns that are in our hymnal that do fantastic at these things and uh, hit a home run and show you why you should learn them, memorize them, and sing them often. Uh, we look forward to being with you. This is episode 38 of At Home in Your Hymnal, a general topic on music and hymnody. We're going to be examining specific hymns in the weeks ahead. God's richest blessings in Christ. <laughs>